Miss the show? No problem. On point and on our podcast, a sobering look at the cost of lockdowns. As Stats Canada shows how many people lost their lives in this country and not because of COVID. What is actually happening in Cuba? And why isn't the Prime Minister being more vocal in his condemnation of the Cuban government? We'll talk about that. And we are recycling more, yet most of it is still going into a landfill. Why? Well, let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I will remind you that as early as the beginning of January, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam was meeting with her uh, her uh, counterparts across the provinces to talk about uh, concerns on this uh, this uh, new novel uh, coronavirus that was appearing in uh, in Wuhan. So we have been active on it. There's always things that we could have and should have done better. Mm-hmm. Let me remind you. While the Trudeau government gets praised for doing such a good job during the pandemic, there are many blatant failures. So we're into the uh, lessons learned phase of this pandemic. So what have we learned? And the question I have is, will anyone actually be held accountable? I already know the answer. Don't count on it. There was a damning federal report that came out Monday. It didn't get a lot of attention, but it should because it, it states very clearly that Federal public health screwed up badly. That our multi-million dollar pandemic early warning system was understaffed and unready when COVID hit. Now, this is a system that once upon a time was the go-to intelligence surveillance system that warned the world of infectious disease threats. I mean, we were known around the world for this intelligence system. And yet in the report, it states that since 2016, under the Trudeau government, public health failed to properly staff the system, which requires experts who know how to monitor and scour the Internet for these looming threats. And, of course, that did not happen. And it didn't happen because there was no one there to do surveillance. There was no one in charge. The position of chief health surveillance officer, we learn, has been vacant since 2017, and apparently the position was going to be totally eliminated because... The Trudeau government had other priorities. So they had no they had no ambition at all to make sure that this surveillance system was continuing. And a lot of people will park the blame at the Harper government and say, well, look, Harper made cuts to public health. Okay, fair enough. But the Trudeau government ran on supporting and investing in scientists. And then five years later, here we are, and they've done nothing to restore the cuts. Instead, what they did, and it's all laid out in the report, is they filled science positions with political suits who had absolutely no clue about health issues or pandemic threats because they don't have a science background. Their job was to write talking points that made the Trudeau government look good. I mean, nothing of this is new. You might be saying, like, I've heard this before, and I, you have, because I've been talking about this disaster called public health for months on this show. So this report, which Patty Hyju, the incompetent, pitiful public health minister, uh, to me is just political theater. It confirms what we already knew, 
And that is, incompetent people were put in charge. I mean, their job was not to protect Canadians from looming health threats. Because the report clearly states that the staff spent all their time compiling news clippings. So that the minister and her government could keep telling us positive news. Things like, COVID's low risk. We are prepared. And we all know that is a lie. All of it was lies. I mean, we should have been ready. No question about it. We should have been ready. We are the one country that should have been more prepared than any other, given our experience with SARS. Because SARS led to multiple reports, multiple, you know, inquests, inquiries, commission, whatever. They held them all. And so the idea was that we'd be prepared for the next pandemic. Dr. Tam wrote a pandemic preparedness report in 2006. And clearly all of that stuff was left to collect dust on a shelf. So I found it pretty rich today listening to the prime minister when he was asked to respond about this report that we were ahead of the game thanks to SARS because it's just not true. Otherwise, his government would have moved much faster to shut borders to travel instead of letting millions of sick people in. They would have prepared and built field hospitals ahead of time and would have made sure to have stockpiles of PPE. And we had none of that. And that's because, and we already know, his government threw out much of our PPE. They landfilled it in 2019 and then gave the rest of it away to China. So his answer was just a load of hooey. The report also reveals that the report's kind of, it's not complete because public health failed to hand over significant documents as to who made this major policy change. Whose idea was it to gut the early warning pandemic system and stop warnings from being issued? Was it Patty Haju? Was it Mr. Trudeau? Who knows? Because once again, we find ourselves with zero transparency from the government of transparency. And so the question then becomes, whose head's going to roll? Well, no one's. No one's head's going to roll. We know that when it comes to failure, that this government rarely pays a price. And despite numerous examples of failure from the start of this pandemic nightmare, uh, this narrative already has been spun and accepted, and that is that the Trudeau government's done a pretty good job of leading in a crisis that no one could have known about, which again is a lie. Because had competent people been put in charge and had all our experts use the lessons learned from SARS, we could have and would have acted much faster. We would have been more prepared and likely spared a lot of the pain of the last 16 months. There's no question we could have avoided it altogether, but certainly we could have been like a couple of other countries, like Taiwan, like other countries in Asia that shut down borders immediately and barely got affected by this thing. So, yeah, we could have absolutely been like one of those countries. So the spin heading into this election will be that Trudeau did a pretty good job during this pandemic. The polling shows people think he did a really good job. But the actual talking point should be that thanks to blatant incompetence and very bad decision making, the Trudeau government very much created a disaster of their own making that we will pay the price for and they know no one will punish them for it. That is just the sad reality. Otherwise, polling would be much different on this issue. So that is my spin on that.
But again, I've been talking, uh, I'm preaching to the choir. I, I, very few others uh, see it this way. We've been saying from the beginning, or I have anyway, um, a couple of others have been saying that lockdowns have costs, and they do. And we're starting to get, I think, a, a sobering tally. And, you know, the focus all along by the experts and those in charge have been about COVID deaths and illnesses. And now we learn through Stats Canada that thousands of Canadians under 65 actually died not from COVID, but from drug and alcohol abuse, likely because they overdosed while locked down and alone. And so they crunched the numbers looking between March 2020 to April 2021 and find that much more than 5,500 people died of a drug overdose, which is higher than at any crisis point during our opiate crisis. And the worst hit provinces, Alberta and Ontario. And of course, I'm not surprised by Ontario because we've been locked down more than any other place in the, in the world. And we also find out that lockdowns have led to a 28% spike in alcohol use during lockdowns, likely because liquor stores were open and people were completely uh, trying to drink themselves into some kind of happiness or companionship or whatever. And they warn that over the you know coming months, that data is going to change. It'll likely go higher because they still haven't gotten data from BC. I'd like to bring Yana Budd into this conversation, co-founder and clinical director of the farm in Stouffville and Recover at Home, addiction and crisis therapist. He's also the host of Road to Recovery, which you can listen to right here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, Saturdays, 10 o'clock at night. Hey, Yana, good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. It's great to be here. You know, we talk about collateral damage, and when you actually, you know, define what that is, that is people who died um, or or became sickened by things that weren't COVID. And we seem to have become quite comfortable with choosing winners and losers in this thing, and a lot of losers are, are those who got, um, you know, mixed up with drugs, alcohol, or overdosed. Yeah, big time. Um, you know, I was saying... To my colleagues and to the people that I talk to that, uh, you know, going back probably 14 or 15 months ago, started saying, like, this is going to be really ugly, guys, when we get to the other side of this thing. Like, we have no idea the impact that this is going to have. And, 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 you know, you talk about the alcohol and the drugs and overdoses and stuff, but, you know, you got to understand, you know, I, I'm hoping you'll understand that what fuels that is just unsettled mental health. So add a lockdown to that and, uh, you know, uncertainty and all that stuff, people that are perhaps struggling to begin with, really go uh, to a deep place and they can't get the help they need. You mix it all together and you got the mess that we're sitting with right now. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, we've heard about certainly mental health issues have gone uh, through the roof. We know that younger people, uh, kids, a lot of eating disorders, those kinds of mental health issues are being um, reported suicides with younger people. But, you know, COVID you can recover from. A lot of mental health issues and addictions, you can't. I mean, they become a lifelong thing. And so when we talk about lockdowns and we hear so much about doctors on the science table who are pro-lockdown, why, why don't they think about the other side of this and the costs to people? You know, you if you bring uh, your car to a mechanic and you ask him to look at the engine, he's not going to look inside to see the ripped piece of upholstery. So we have a, a roundtable of people who are focused on the whole COVID experience, getting businesses up and running and so on. And uh, very few people, other than, let's say, Minister Tobolo, were focused on what was what it was doing to people, especially kids. So um, just not having their eye on the ball because they were busy with the balls that they had at the time. 
Right. And, and again, mental health illnesses and, and addiction issues have been around for a long time. I mean, we really only started talking about the opiate crisis across this country, I would say, around 2016. Otherwise, it's been ignored. And now it's been ignored during right. this uh, pandemic. Um, but we have always right. fallen short when it comes to mental health spending and certainly um, addiction treatment. And, and I don't know where we're going to go from here because we have such a daunting and huge hole in our in our health system not just uh, of, of surgeries we have to catch up with now backlog performance uh, procedures and all the rest of it but the mental health spending we actually need i i don't think we can actually figure out a number for it because it's that big well, I mean, like you said, we were underspending to begin with, and now you it's exasperated by maybe five or six-fold. So we're going to be that far behind the eight ball. And, you know, and, and frankly, the funding that's been spent, and if you hear Minister Tobolo and the people in the Ontario government talking about all the money they're spending on things, and they're going to increase bed capacity by seven beds or 12 beds. So that's mm-hmm. like a spit in the ocean, right? It's it's going to do very little. Um, the reality that we're seeing now, though, it's, it's not the people living in cardboard boxes or the homeless folks that we're worrying about addiction and mental health with it's the kids that live in your house and your neighbors yeah. and the guys that work with you at the office and the lady down the hall so it's it's really wake it's waking us all up to realize that this is a huge problem not just for those that are you know quote unquote underprivileged or at risk but we're all yeah. at risk and as soon as you make it an equalizer right with lockdown you equalize everybody now you see what we see and it's uh, it's i don't see we can spend our way out of this alex i'm not sure how that's going to work yeah, I mean, there have been some absolutely heartbreaking uh, stories. I mean, but there are a lot of people, as you say, who are out just functioning day to day, even though they're carrying around this very dark world with them. What do you say? Right. What is the approach that we actually need to take at this point? Um, interesting. I had this discussion with some folks last night, and, and we were talking about uh, the corporate world and the work that needs to be done at the corporate world and how much uh, most companies have insurance, actually, to pay for EAP programs, employee uh, access programs, so pe- kids, employees can get the, wor- the support they need. We're going to have to be support people at work, at home, and at play. Uh, you know, we got to get our kids back into programs that have coaching. we got to get our, our, ourselves back to offices that have HR departments and people that can help us. We, we need to spread this beyond just government government, uh, virtual care, you know, beds and beds and rehab and all that stuff. This needs to be something that we blanket um, our so our whole social environment with uh, the same as we did with, with the pandemic. We, we've seen that we can mobilize uh, across all platforms uh, for one cause. And I think that new cause needs to be now uh, mental health, addiction and suicide rates in youth in our youth. Yeah. Uh, we need to mobilize across all, all platforms to do that. Yeah, and what what would be the conversation that you think is not being had that that those in charge need to be having? Would it be about the mental health issues with the younger people, or is it? Uh, are there multiple conversations? Well, let's say Mary Jane works in the office and she's the receptionist and she's got a kid at home who's got some hard times or going through yeah. a difficult time because school really messed him up because he's not going. She's, she's not going to do a great job. So employers need to understand that employees need to be supported in order to do a good job. It, it actually goes right to the bottom line. So the conversation needs to be had that, hey, everyone's been through a really difficult time. Let's talk about it, you know, like, like Chorus does on Fridays. You know, I understand on Fridays yeah. you don't have any major meetings. They have days where you unplug and all that stuff. Like that's really cool stuff right and that helps make these things make this situation change uh slowly but surely but it has to start everywhere we touch work home and play long road ahead of us on this to recovery so uh, we'll keep talking about it and you will will be coming on with me on thursdays pretty regularly we'll be talking about this issue so i really appreciate being able to pick your brain on it yona thanks a lot 
Am I allowed to say I love your show? Sure. Better than saying Okay, I, I love it, your yeah. show. <laughs> I love you too. No, I right? love it. I Thank love you. listening to you. I love listening <laughs> to stuff. the show. Okay, I'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Peace. Thank you very much. That is Yana Bun. Yeah, you can say you love me. Hey, that's great. Love to hear it. And uh, you can listen to him, of course, uh, here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, Saturday, 10 p.m., uh, where he helps with a lot of the issues that we are going to be discussing for a whole long time ahead. As a country, Canada has always stood uh, in friendship with the Cuban people. Uh, we have uh, always uh, called for greater freedoms and more defense of human rights in Cuba. And we will continue uh, to be there to support uh, Cubans in their desire for uh, greater peace, greater stability uh, and greater voice in, uh, in how things are going. Well, that is uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, who was asked this morning his thoughts on Cuba and uh, refused to condemn what's happening to the Cuban people who have been essentially cut off from the world. They've been cut off from the Internet, plagued by power outages. Uh, they're suffering medical shortages and a really big surge in COVID infections, which has led to everyday Cubans waiting in lines every single day for hours just to get the basics to live. And um, this is the biggest protest by far that we've seen in Cuba, with Cubans taking to the streets and demanding freedom, telling their president that they're no longer afraid of him, and they want him gone. And this uprising comes during, of course, Cuba's worst economic crisis since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so where does it go? I mean, Joe Biden was asked where he stands, and he was pretty clear. He said, quote, we stand with Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic, and from decades of repression and economic suffering, the United States calls on the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. So a little bit different tone than our prime minister. Let us bring in Marcus Kolga to this conversation. He is senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, also founder and director for Disinfo Watch and an expert on all things Russia, Eastern Europe and Asia. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on. Well, Russia, um, speaking of your expertise, they have issued a warning uh, to outside interference. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why Trudeau is, uh, you know, so wobbly weed in his response. But, you know, given our close ties to Cuba, in particular, the people, uh, you would think that maybe Trudeau would take a stand. But then I think given his past history, I mean, I don't think a lot of people would be surprised that he didn't take a stand. Well, look, I'm not sure that the prime minister is paying too close attention to what's happening in Cuba. Um, you know, Global Affairs put out a tweet yesterday that was, you know, similarly uh, neutral in its position, you know, to taking the usual uh, stand to support the people and our friends in Cuba and such. Um, the, the Global Affairs uh, tweet was interesting in that it said that we will continue to support uh, Cuba as it, as it struggles with, with COVID-19, which is which is wonderful, but these protests aren't so much about COVID as they are about, you know, going back 60 years of repression um, and the stifling of, of democracy. Um, there's also been, as you mentioned, these massive food shortages. Um, Cubans are waiting literally 10, 8, 10 hours to get the, just the basics from, uh, from their grocery stores. And these are grocery stores that only take U.S. dollars. So, even their own local currency isn't being accepted. People can't use them. The vast majority of people cannot get food. And basic medical supplies like aspirin and penicillin aren't available. So, um, you know, I think we need to do a bit more at this point than simply, uh, you know, speak out and, and say that we're standing with the Cuban people. 
Um, we need to take real action and, and support yeah. these people because there is a crisis happening in Cuba right now. And if we don't, uh, if we don't start acting soon, the people themselves are really going to suffer. Yeah, I mean, their economy has contracted a whopping 10% uh, through this uh, virus and this pandemic. That is a lot. And I think people here in Canada, because we go to their island, we travel, we love the Cuban yeah. people, I think people just see it as a paradise and kind of look away from the real um, issue of, of communism, and that is these people are not free. And so they don't enjoy the freedom that we have. Um, and essentially now, they're taking to the streets, they've been cut off from the world, they have no internet now, and they're up against this 24-7 state-fueled propaganda from from their president um, telling communists, you know, to take to the streets to, to stop them. Um, and Biden has warned the Cuban officials from cracking down on, on these demonstrators. But when you've got Russia on the other side of this telling, uh, you know, the outside world to stay out of this, w- what happens? Well, and you can see that the president and the and the Cuban government are, are in a bit of a panic mode themselves. Um, you know, the fact that you had literally thousands of protesters taking to the street across Cuba. And this wasn't just in Havana. This, there were dozens, literally dozens and dozens of protests across the entire country. Um, mm. And what that tells the president is that, as you mentioned earlier, the people have lost one important thing, and that is fear. They, they no longer fear the, the government nor its repressive crackdowns. Um, the, the freedom that they've been longing for for 60 years, the fact that they, they don't have any food, they don't have medical supplies, all of these are trumping that fear. And once they, these protesters and the people overcome that fear, uh, then you know, leaders like the president of Cuba and that, that regime are in real trouble. So I think right now what we're seeing is the, the, the president of Cuba digging in his nails uh, to mm-hmm. hold on to power. And of course, they're going to have uh, other, you know, authoritarian allies like Russia, you know, like China, Venezuela. They're going to uh, jump up and, and support uh, the, the regime and, and certainly, uh, you know, I think challenge the, the U.S. remarks on, on what's happening in, in Cuba. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll have to see where, where that goes. But it's, it's certainly no surprise. And, and you mentioned Canada and our tourists. You know, I think Canada has a real role to play here. Um, instead, you know, again, beyond just the, uh, you know, words of support for, for the Cuban people. Um, there are, in 2019, there were over one million Canadian tourists who visited Cuba. And those tourists are the leading source of foreign uh, revenue uh, for Cuba. And so, you know, I think that Canada can do a little bit more. They can leverage um, that that gigantic, enormous uh, stream of revenue uh, to perhaps uh, do a little bit more to to protect the protesters and promote some democratic change in Cuba beyond a, a simple tweet and a, and a few words during a, a, a press conference. Yeah, I mean, wearing your Che Guevara T-shirt uh, is not really going to do much for, for the, the, the Cuban people. But, you know, a lot of people will argue, yes, but if we don't give them our tourist dollars, this just further hurts the, the local people. Uh, bottom line is um, they are taking to the streets for a reason, and, and we yeah. owe it to them if we care about the Cuban people to actually help and stand with them or act. Uh, my question, though, becomes like, what's, gonna, what's the action going to be? Because we've seen these uprisings in Venezuela. 
not it, it didn't turn anything. Uh, we've seen uprisings in countries like Iran. Um, you know, the government just uh, continues to put their foot on the people. We've seen these uprisings in authoritarian countries. Not all have been uh, successful. And so what happens here? And at what well, point then does does United States and Canada actually do more than just take a stand and say something? Well, look, this this is a government and an economy in, in genuine crisis. It's uh, not unlike uh, the situation in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s before the collapse of that regime. Insofar as, you know, again, the economy is collapsing. There are food shortages. They're unable to provide power to, to much of the country. Um, and and the people, through the, the limited Internet that they're getting, are able to now share information with each other. They're able to get information from the outside, real news about what's happening. And I think all of those ingredients... Um, sort of, uh, you know, I, I think that the, what they spell for, for that, for, for Cuba, is, is a change. There is a change that is about to happen. And I think Canada and, and the United States really need to sort of um, look at themselves and, and, and look at what's happening and decide on whether they want to help um, uh, enable that change that's going to come um, make, to ensure that it happens peacefully um, but most importantly, to do what's in the best interest of the people of, of Cuba. Um, but yeah. we, I, I strongly believe that there is, given what's happening, that there will be a change coming. I don't see any sort of improvement uh, for the Cuban economy. The, the, its main supporters and enablers have been uh, countries like Venezuela and Russia, who are bearing, having a very hard time uh, coping with the current, you know, the coronavirus uh, and, and the, the downturn in their own economies right now and i don't see them supporting uh, cuba at this point so cuba is very much uh, alone at this point and uh, mm-hmm. and there's an opportunity here that we should be taking advantage of to help the cuban people to make that change for democracy and freedom well that would mean a, a turn of um thinking with leaders like jagmeet singh and, and uh, justin trudeau who have heaped praise on former leaders of this country, um, you know, uh, yep. praising them, uh, but a real change in, in attitude. So, you know, I'll keep in touch with you because I keep asking, like, is this something we should be talking about? I know you're keeping an eye on it, but clearly there's a, a moment of change that seems to be upon us. So we'll keep talking about it. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Thanks for covering this, this topic and having me on. You're always welcome. Uh, Marcus Kolga joining us, and I always appreciate his expertise on this. So we will. Uh, let's put our talk into action instead of just, uh, you know, wishing our thoughts and prayers. Let's start with the good news. And the good news is Canadians have done a pretty good job of reducing, reusing, and recycling our garbage over the last 20 years. But the bad news is that the majority of what we put in the blue box is ending up in landfills still. And the Fraser Institute dug into these numbers and finds, you know, that we threw out 5 million tons more of things like diapers, food waste, and packaging over the last 20 years. But when you actually factor in population and economic growth, we are actually throwing out less because we've changed our habits, and that is separating the waste. And so that's good. But then you learn that what we're putting into the blue box, 72% of it is not getting recycled. It just goes to the dump. So we're doing our part, but on the other end of it, it's a smoke and mirrors because we are not actually reusing. We're just dumping. Almira Al-Akbari is the co-author of this study of Generation and Management of Municipal Solid Waste. How is Canada doing? Good to have you on. Thanks, Alex, for having me. 
it sounds like we're doing better than we are, but, you know, this is a conversation I, I've had a, a few times where I think people think that they're doing their part. You know, I, you know, a lot of us painstakingly put the milk carton where it's supposed to go, the black plastic where it's supposed to go, and you do our, you know, our part. It's very discouraging when we find out how much of it is not actually getting reused and recycled. So, um, you know, as you mentioned in this study, uh, we examined the state and evolution of the generation of uh, municipal solid waste, more commonly known as trash or garbage in Canada over the past two decades, um, using official data and government reports. And we found that Canadians are generating less waste over time when accounting for population and economic activity. Um, specifically, uh, waste generation was 2% less on a per-person basis and 23% less per unit of economic activity in 2018 compared to 2002. Um, you know, economic growth and population growth are the main drivers of uh, waste generation. As countries increase their wealth and prosperity, people tend to consume more resources and therefore mm-hmm. waste generation is expected to increase typically at about the same rate. However, in Canada, over the past two decades, when we looked at the data, we found that as the country continued to grow its economy, waste generation grew more slowly. Uh, Specifically, Mm -hmm. between 2002 and 2018, our economy grew by nearly 50%, but waste generation only increased by 16%. So the fact that Canada's waste generation grew more slowly than its economy suggests that we have partially decoupled economic growth from waste generation, which is great news for the environment because uh, this means that we are becoming more efficient in the consumption of our resources. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and I cringe every time I get an Amazon delivery thinking it's going to be a big delivery, and then I find, like, a, a toothpick within a massive amount of packaging. I think we can do a lot better than this. But I do think, by and large, Canadians try to do their part. Uh, but it is discouraging that in, you know, the decades since we brought in recycling programs to municipalities across this um you know, province, I'll I'll stick with Ontario, that we just haven't gotten better in making sure that what we put in the blue box actually, you know, gets repurposed and and eases some of the waste. Um, We also examined the evolution of solid waste management in Canada. Um, So that means uh, that we have looked at uh, disposal and diversion, and diversion includes uh, recycling. And what we found is that over the past two decades, Canada has uh, moved uh, toward more disposing of less um, waste and diverting more. Uh, specifically, for instance, if I want to give you some um, numbers, um, uh, per person waste diversion uh, increased by 25% uh, over the past two decades uh, in Canada. So um, we also have provided a diversion rates for um, different provinces, including Ontario. But what we observed is that, in general, we see that we are moving toward more uh, diversion uh, and less disposal. And when you're talking about diversion, like we're talking about making sure that, um, you know, food waste goes in, uh, you know, to be recomposted. Uh, But again, why is so much ending up in the landfills? That's what I don't understand. This is a long going issue, um, you know, that that municipalities have had to deal with because of the expense of it. 
But, you know, what's the point in putting anything in a blue box if, it, if it's not going to actually get recycled? How do we, how do we uh, you know, zero in on that? Because if we can actually fix that part of the problem, then we're actually doing a really good job in, in lowering our waste and what we throw out and making sure that what we can reuse actually does get uh, repurposed. So that's a really great question that you're raising. Um, but, um, you know, in this report, we have simply looked at the data uh, on um, basically uh, the generation and management of solid waste in Canada. And uh, this is what the data tells us. But these uh, results might have some policy implications. And um, this is, uh, I think, something that we can do in a separate study. So, but you know, as I mentioned, this is a great question that you are raising, but this is not something that we looked into uh, in this study. Um, in this study, when we looked at the data, uh, one interesting finding was that uh, while uh, per-person waste generation is declining in Canada, the sources of waste are changing. Um, household waste uh, is under rise and now makes up over 40% of total waste generated. Uh, on the other hand, uh, waste generation from non-residential sources, including industrial sources, has declined over the past two decades. So this means that the reduction in overall waste generation that we observed in Canada when we accounted for population and economic activity is driven by non-residential sources. And this was an interesting finding uh, of this report. Just quickly before I let you go, Elmira, um, does the data include, you know, the last year and a half, some of our habits during the pandemic? No, the latest year goes back to 2018. Um, so this data is coming from Stat Canada, and the latest year is 2018 that we looked at. So this uh, doesn't include the pandemic year. Which may actually see those numbers go in the wrong direction, because I think a lot of people, given that we had to sit in our house ordering up a lot of stuff online and uh, throwing out a lot of stuff, I'll be yeah. interested to see. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we can. Um, yeah, we have to just wait uh, for a while to kind of get to see the data um, getting updated. So, but I agree with you. you. That uh, household waste, uh, even when we looked at uh, the data over the past two decades, we found that household waste. Uh, was on the rise. And now with the pandemic, it seems that this is going to get worse. But again, we haven't looked at the data uh, or the pandemic. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Is Elmira Aliakbari joining us here. And uh, we'll wait for those new numbers because I'm not so sure that they will be something to be very prideful about. All righty. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.